The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Removing Obstructions for Improved HCM Care, Leveling Up Diagnosis and Management in General Cardiology Practice. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash UBM 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello, this is Anjali Owens from the University of Pennsylvania Perlman School of Medicine. Welcome to this educational update on hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. We're going to start by addressing the gaps in HCM diagnosis and care. Sarcomeric hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is the most common genetic cause of left ventricular hypertrophy, occurring in somewhere between 1 in 200 to 1 in 500 individuals worldwide. With this prevalence, we have an estimated 15 to 20 million people living with HCM, the vast majority of whom are undiagnosed. This condition affects men and women. It affects people of all ages and all ethnic backgrounds. HCM is primarily a disease of the cardiac sarcomere or the contractile unit of the heart with the vast majority of pathogenic variants occurring in myosin binding protein C and myosin heavy chain. Here's a depiction of the various phenotypes that we see with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And again, as a reminder, the diagnostic criteria are uh, evidence of hypertrophy in any segment of the left ventricle. It can occur at the base, the apex, the lateral wall, really anywhere in the left ventricle with a maximum end diastolic wall thickness of greater than or equal to 1.5 centimeters. We reduce that threshold to 1.3 centimeters in the setting of someone with a known pathogenic variant or a positive family history of HCM. We classify patients based on hemodynamics, whether or not they have evidence of outflow tract obstruction. And again, that's uh, difficulty getting blood out of the heart with each contraction. So patients who do not have obstruction have no LVOT gradient, and that's pictured on the left. Patients with obstruction are pictured in the middle. They often have asymmetric septal hypertrophy with systolic anterior motion of the mitral valve that can lead to posteriorly directed mitral regurgitation. This is the obstructive phenotype where an LVOT gradient measures greater than or equal to 30 millimeters of mercury at rest. There are patients with a mid-cavitary phenotype. This is, again, hypertrophy further down in the left ventricle. This can lead to mid-cavitary obstruction, not at the level of the LVOT, but further down in the ventricle. And over time, we can see the presence uh, or the formation of a left ventricular apical aneurysm in these patients. And finally, pictured on the far right is the more classic apical uh, phenotype of HCM. So we're gonna start with a case. This is Sandra, and we're gonna follow her story throughout this hour. Sandra was born in 1953, and in her 20s, she developed palpitations that were severe enough that she went to her local emergency department for evaluation. So in this circumstance, more than one answer is correct. 
If a patient presents with significant palpitations, troubling enough to seek medical care, then absolutely asking about any factors that precipitate the symptom, make it better or worse, how long it lasts, a physical exam, concentrating on the cardiopulmonary system, an EKG, and a family history would be indicated. Palpitations have a wide differential diagnosis, and we want to rule out anything significant, um, like an arrhythmia, that may be the cause of palpitations. So Sandra, unfortunately, was diagnosed with anxiety by her primary care doctor. She did not undergo a thorough cardiac evaluation at that time in her 20s. We know from an HCMA, the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Patient Association, a survey that was put out by that group that the most frequently reported symptoms for patients with HCM include shortness of breath. That is by far and away the most common symptom. It's often exertional shortness of breath accompanied by exercise intolerance. Patients also report lightheadedness, dizziness, arrhythmias, palpitations, and chest pain that can be typical angina that occurs with exertion or atypical chest discomfort. Importantly, for our patients with HCM, their symptoms may fluctuate from day to day. We often hear that patients have good days and bad days, and there are precipitants or environmental factors that can make symptoms worse. Often we hear that heat and humidity may make symptoms worse. Eating a large meal where the blood flow is directed to the GI system, making the heart less full, that can precipitate LVOT obstruction. And vasodilators like alcohol can also make symptoms worse. Dehydration is another big one for our patients with obstructive HCM. So in terms of diagnostic pitfalls, uh, much of the case of what happened with Sandra we see in other patients, because the symptoms of HCM can be nonspecific and they can overlap with other cardiopulmonary uh, problems, we often see that patients come to us after years of partial diagnosis or misdiagnosis. Common misdiagnoses include Exercise-induced asthma, this occurs a lot in our young patients, where shortness of breath with exertion can mimic asthma, and patients are, for example, prescribed an inhaler to see if it would help. We have a number of patients who come in after years of being told they had a murmur that was either due to mitral valve prolapse or perhaps an innocent murmur. And again, these are systolic murmurs, but in young patients, they're not felt to be potentially pathogenic, and so they're written off as more benign murmurs. In our women, more so than men, we hear misdiagnoses of panic attacks or anxiety. And again, palpitations, lightheadedness, a sense of unease that can come from arrhythmias can also overlap with symptoms of anxiety. And finally, we have a subset of patients, a smaller subset, who have syncope that is inappropriately attributed to a vasovagal event. Here's a survey that was put out by the ACC looking at U.S. cardiologists and what they perceived as the challenges and barriers to treating patients with HCM. And of note, most of these cardiologists did not treat a large volume of patients with HCM. The cost of treatment, the lack of standardization for risk stratification, lack of access to specialty centers, and inadequate or ineffective treatments were themes that were brought up with this survey. 
So when should you suspect HCM? As a healthcare professional, you're seeing patients in clinic every day. I would say that if you hear any of those somewhat nonspecific symptoms, including exertional dyspnea, dizziness, chest discomfort, palpitations, particularly if the symptoms vary day to day and fluctuate in severity, if you get a family history of unexpected death or sudden death, earlier onset heart failure or strokes, and a pattern of autosomal dominant inheritance in a family for cardiomyopathy, that would be highly suspicious of an inherited form of cardiomyopathy such as HCM. Features on exam that should raise suspicion include a systolic ejection murmur that augments with Valsalva maneuver or other maneuvers that decrease LV preload abnormal ECG, or of course, arrhythmia. All of those should heighten your suspicion for HCM. Don't forget that patients with HCM can be completely asymptomatic. And if you're hearing a murmur or you have a concerning family history, an asymptomatic patient can still have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and further investigation may still be warranted. Hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, as you'll remember from our very first slide, can affect patients of both sexes, all races and ethnicities, and all ages. So we see onset of disease from the pediatric um, population all the way into the elderly population. Disparities in treatment do exist, particularly for women and individuals of ethnic minorities, and we need to be cognizant of that, that these patients may be diagnosed later in their disease course and may have more severe disease by the time that they are identified and treated. So let's move on to recognizing the symptoms and making an actual diagnosis of HCM. Back to Sandra. So as you'll recall, she had palpitations in her 20s. She was given a diagnosis of anxiety without much of a cardiac workup at that time. And now about 20 years later, she presents with atypical chest pain. She was given nitroglycerin, which worsened the pain. And then she was treated with a beta blocker. Of note, she did have cardiac investigation at the time of that presentation that revealed an elevated troponin and an EKG that was abnormal with evidence of left ventricular hypertrophy and repolarization changes. Due to the EKG changes and the elevated troponin accompanied by chest pain, she actually had a coronary angiogram that revealed normal coronary arteries. This is a very frequent scenario for our patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. They did do an echo at that time, which was reported as mild concentric left ventricular hypertrophy and a normal ejection fraction. She did not receive a diagnosis at that point, but was tried on a beta blocker to see if it would help with her symptoms of chest discomfort. Unfortunately for Sandra, she developed worsening dyspnea on exertion, fatigue, and wheezing. Again, this was with treatment with the beta blocker. She was then given a diagnosis of asthma that was felt to be perhaps precipitated um, by bronchoconstriction from the beta blocker. The beta blocker was stopped at that point, and she was tried on verapamil, a calcium channel blocker, and also given an inhaler to treat her symptoms that were presumed to be asthma. 
So let's look at what the ACC AHA 2020 guidelines on diagnosis and management of HCM say. We already know that our suspicion has been raised in Sandra by her symptoms, by having a cardiac event, and by having an abnormal ECG. What's critical in diagnosing HCM is to do cardiac imaging. We start with a transthoracic echo. If left ventricular hypertrophy is identified, it's important to measure accurately the wall thickness and also to look for any evidence of LVOT obstruction that can occur at rest and should also be provoked either with Valsalva maneuver or with exercise in order to ensure that we're able to classify the patient as either obstructive or non-obstructive with regard to their hemodynamics. If transthoracic echo is not diagnostic, then we move to cardiac MRI, which can give us additional accuracy in terms of wall thickness measurement and give us a better sense of anatomy, both of the mitral valve and of the left ventricle. In all of our patients, we do a 12-lead ECG, a comprehensive physical exam, again, with attention to detail with regard to cardiac murmurs, and we take a multi-generation family history, or what we call a pedigree, looking for evidence of autosomal dominant transition, which is the classic form of transmission in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy that's due to sarcomere variants. The 2023 ESC guidelines stress the importance of multimodality imaging to diagnose HCM. So again, if you have a clinical suspicion of cardiomyopathy based on family history, physical exam, abnormal EKG, then you really move on to imaging, starting with a transthoracic echo, and then perhaps considering an MRI. Many of our patients these days do end up getting MRI. We can look for features of cardiomyopathy, and we can also rule out phenocopies or other forms of cardiomyopathy that look like hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in the coming slides. We can get tissue characterization on MRI and whether or not there is scar tissue present. We use ECHO lifelong in patients with HCM to look for disease progression, to do risk stratification, for the potential need for a defibrillator, and also to do routine standard follow-up. Here's an example of how echo and MRI can be complementary in a patient with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy with regard to making a diagnosis and also risk stratification. So pictured on the top is an echo image on the top left measuring the septal wall thickness at around two centimeters. And you can see there that it's difficult to know where the intraventricular septal measurements are because of the presence of RV trabeculation. On the right, however, at the top is a corresponding MRI image that very clearly shows that the wall thickness is more than what was measured by echo with a maximal wall thickness just under three centimeters. 
Another place where MRI can be very complementary to echo and give us better image quality is when we're concerned about the apical variant of HCM. And again, you can see on the bottom left an echo image that does visualize the left ventricle and gives the suggestion that there may be thickening at the apical wall. But the MRI really clearly elucidates the thickness of the apex, the uh, abnormal spade-shaped left ventricle, which is classic for apical HCM. You can also use echo with echo contrast to get a good look at the apex. So back to the 2023 ESC guidelines, they stress the importance of multimodality imaging. And here's an example of how MRI and tissue characterization on MRI can help us to differentiate sarcomeric HCM, which is pictured at the bottom, where we classically see a pattern of late gadolinium enhancement that's patchy, located in the middle of the wall, and associated to the areas that are most hypertrophied. And we contrast that to the LGE pattern that is seen typically with cardiac amyloid, where we may see more diffuse LGE and subendocardial LGE. And finally, with the top image, which is a storage condition, Anderson Fabry disease, where we classically see posteriorly lateral uh, location of LGE and a low native T1. So again, when you're at the beginning of your diagnostic journey, you have somebody with left ventricular hypertrophy, it's very important to make the correct diagnosis. We are now in an era we have targeted therapies depending on what's causing the cardiomyopathy, and we wanna be sure that we have the correct diagnosis before employing those therapies. What can we do beyond imaging to make sure that we have the correct diagnosis? So beyond our echo and MRI, there are also extra cardiac features that may tell you that what you're dealing with is not actually sarcomeric HCM, but one of the mimics or phenotypes. We can also look to EKG, where a pseudo-infarct pattern, voltage changes, short PRs, or presence of WPW, Wolf-Parkinson-White, pre-excitation, may all hint to another underlying cause of left ventricular hypertrophy, some of which are listed on the left-sided column. If you see uh, a carpal tunnel syndrome or neuropathy, if you are picking up a skeletal myopathy or a more syndromic look to your patient, again, these are all hints that you may be dealing with something other than sarcomeric HCM. So can HCM be diagnosed from the EKG alone? There are typical findings that we see in our patients with HCM, including voltage criteria for left ventricular hypertrophy, repolarization abnormalities or ST and T wave changes. We can see left atrial abnormalities and hearts that have remodeled to the point that they have left atrial enlargement. And we can see um, Q waves located in some EKGs. However, it's important to note that a normal EKG does not rule out HCM. So if your suspicion is high based on an abnormal physical exam or concerning symptoms or family history, it's not enough to stop at the EKG. You should proceed with cardiac imaging to be sure that you're ruling out an underlying cardiomyopathy. There are new systems that are recently FDA approved 
that involve artificial intelligence in order to review an EKG and see if there's an underlying diagnosis of cardiomyopathy. This is one such system um, that was recently FDA approved for the detection of HCM and employs an algorithm that then gives a feedback to the provider to do additional testing and follow-up. And in the years to come, I think we'll find that these systems will help us to identify patients who are incidentally found or in the healthcare system for another reason, but actually have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So back to Sandra. It's now been about 50 years since her initial presentation with palpitations in her 20s. She has now had multiple presentations to the healthcare system with cardiac complaints. And finally, at the age of 70, she refers herself to our program. So Sandra presented to our clinic and pictured here is her baseline EKG, which shows sinus rhythm with voltage criteria for left ventricular hypertrophy and evidence of repolarization changes in the lateral leads that are typical of patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So the right answer here is to pursue an echocardiogram. As we mentioned, she has a suspicious history with cardiac symptoms. She's had a number of presentations to the healthcare system with these complaints. She has an abnormal EKG. The next step in evaluation would be to order an echocardiogram with accurate wall thickness measurement to look for any signs of cardiomyopathy. And importantly, to look for any signs of left ventricular outflow tract obstruction if LVH is identified. Here's Sandra's echocardiogram, a resting transthoracic echocardiogram that was done at our institution on the day that she presented for evaluation. She had severe symptoms at the time with dyspnea with minimal exertion. As you can see by her transthoracic echo, her ejection fraction is hyperdynamic in the 70% range. She has severe asymmetric septal hypertrophy and very clear systolic anterior motion of the mitral valve with septal contact of her anterior leaflet. That results in significant mitral regurgitation. And over the years, she's had remodeling and enlargement of her left atrium. She also has signs of diastolic dysfunction with an E over E prime of 31 and a resting LVOT gradient that was noted to be greater than 80 millimeters of mercury. Here's Sandra's MRI, which was not done at our institution, but we were able to obtain a copy of the disc. And again, although the images are not crystal clear, they are certainly clear enough to identify the presence of asymmetric septal hypertrophy with systolic anterior motion of the mitral valve. There's very turbulent flow evident in the LVOT and concomitant posteriorly directed mitral regurgitation. So the diagnosis for Sandra that she received uh, almost 70 years into her life is obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. The features that we see in obstructive HCM that differentiate it from the other choices on the slide are the presence of asymmetric septal hypertrophy, evidence of severe systolic anterior motion of the mitral valve with an elevated gradient, and mitral regurgitation.
So in the next segment, we're going to identify when and how a novel class of therapies called cardiac myosin inhibitors fit within the management algorithm for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So first, let's look at a couple of studies that have been done um, that may suggest that earlier diagnosis and treatment of HCM are favorable to slow disease progression and reduce the need for invasive treatments. Now, the first study, the VANISH study, is not a trial for cardiac myosin inhibitors, but rather a trial of a drug that's been FDA-approved for a long time, Valsartan, which is an angiotensin receptor blocker. This study looked at one side of the spectrum, patients with early sarcomeric HCM who did not have LVOT obstruction, and many of whom were asymptomatic, but they carried a pathogenic variant in a sarcomere gene. In this study, 178 patients were randomized to either valsartan or placebo, and a composite uh, endpoint looking at a number of features, including LV size, biomarkers, and EKG parameters, showed that patients who received valsartan had greater benefit than those who did not. And we'll talk a little bit more about that study later in this segment. The second is the MAVA-LTE study. This was a study of myosin inhibitors, in fact, the first-in-class agent MAVA-Cantin. And this was the long-term extension of the Explorer HCM study, the pivotal phase three study that led to the uh, approval of MAVA-Cantin. In this long-term extension, we saw sustained improvements in cardiac structure and function and sustained improvements in LVOT gradient in patients who remained in the open-label long-term extension. Importantly, we did not see any new safety signals. And finally, the Valor HCM study, which is another phase three study of Mavicampton. This study was done in patients with severe symptoms, over 93% of whom had class three symptoms, and all of them were severely obstructed and were under active consideration for septal reduction therapy. In this study, we saw that Mavicampton alleviated the need for septal reduction therapy in 88% of patients with continued benefit demonstrated throughout 56 weeks of treatment. Let's talk a little bit more about the VANISH study. So pictured here um, are the groups that were looked at. And we saw that there were uh, slightly better results seen in the group of patients with myosin-heavy chain variants than those with myosin-binding protein C. I think we will need further studies to really know who may benefit from Valsartan, but at least in this small, very well-done study, we saw that the composite endpoint was improved in those patients who took Valsartan and we saw that Valsartan was very well tolerated. And that's an important point when you're starting a therapy in young patients. 43% of these patients were pediatric age. And in patients who don't have any symptoms. So again, you want a very well tolerated and safe therapy in that group. Let's move on to talk about the cardiac myosin inhibitors and trials of cardiac myosin inhibitors. So the first in class agent is Mavicampton and the next in class agent is Afficampton. 
Both of these drugs work by modulating contractility at the level of the cardiac sarcomere. So they take a heart that is hypercontractile, which is often the case in our patients with HCM, and they bring down contractility a notch so that patients' hearts are contracting more normally, and importantly, relaxing more normally. Pictured here are the long-term effects of mavicamptin in patients with obstructive HCM. These are 120-week results from the EXPLORE cohort of MAVA-LTE. And again, these were all patients who took part in the pivotal phase three EXPLORE trial and then opted to continue open-label therapy with mavicamptin. And you can see here that out through 120 weeks, somewhere between 60 and 75% of patients had improvement in NYHA functional class by at least one class. There was almost no one who worsened and a fair percentage of people who remained the same with no change. Looking beyond the favorable effects on functional class in this cohort of patients in the MAVA-LTE study, let's look at the adverse events that occurred through 120 weeks of treatment. Importantly, we did not see any new safety signals, but we continue to see the risk of dropping ejection fraction to less than 50%. That occurred in total in 13 patients, or 5.6% of the patient population in this study. It's important that this is recognized and that patients are temporarily stopped from getting mavicamptin and then can resume treatment after the LVEF recovers to greater than 50%. Pictured here are results from the phase two Redwood study looking at afficamptin in patients with obstructive HCM. There were three cohorts in the Redwood study. Cohort one and two uh, are placebo-controlled arms. Pictured on the left side is the change in NYHA functional class. And you can see in the higher dose cohort two that 60% of patients improve their NYHA functional class. In cohort three, which was an open label, smaller cohort of patients with really refractory obstruction who were already treated with disopyramide and AV nodal blockers, we can see that the addition of afficamptin improved symptoms and it also improved LVOT gradient. Pictured on the right is the change in left ventricular ejection fraction in each of the cohorts compared to placebo. And again, by mechanism of action of these drugs, we expect a small decline in ejection fraction can occur. Larger changes can occur on an individual basis, but in aggregate, you can see a small change in LVEF remaining in aggregate above 50%. Here are the newest set of ESC guidelines that came out very recently with regard to treatment algorithms for patients with obstructive HCM. It's important, of course, to measure resting and provocable LVOT gradients. And if you find that the gradient is high and that the patient has symptoms, then treatment is warranted. The first line of therapy are the non-vasodilating beta blocker agents. That's a class one recommendation. If patients remain symptomatic, 
or are intolerant of beta blockade and continue to have LVOT obstruction, then the addition or changing to a calcium channel blocker, a non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blocker is indicated. If patients remain symptomatic with severe obstruction, then addition of disopyramide, an antiarrhythmic agent with negative inotropic properties, or the cardiac myosin inhibitor mavicamptin received a class 2A indication in this updated set of guidelines. If patients remain symptomatic, refractory to medical therapy, then septal reduction therapy is indicated. So in summary, if you're a practicing healthcare professional and you're wondering which population may benefit from Mavicamptin, which is the only currently FDA-approved cardiac myosin inhibitor. If you have a patient who has tried first-line therapy and remains symptomatic and obstructed, similar to the Explorer population, Mavicamptin was shown to improve symptoms, improve exercise tolerance, and improve LVOT gradients in those patients, the majority of whom were class two in the Explorer study. Or if you're seeing a sicker patient, someone who has already tried first-line therapy and is considering second-line therapy or septal reduction therapy, a class 3 patient, then from data from the VALOR trial, we know that those patients may also benefit from the addition of Mavicamptin and that it may delay or prevent the need for septal reduction therapy in some patients. So we'll talk in the next session about collaborating with your patient to individualize their care. This is perhaps the most important point for clinicians who are really seeing patients every day in clinic. We know from the SHARE International Registry, which has enrolled about 10,000 patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, that approximately 18% of patients will require septal reduction therapy for refractory obstructive HCM. Um, in their lifetime. The two forms of invasive septal reduction therapy that are currently used are open heart surgery, which is septal myectomy, pictured on the left. Again, this is surgery that is, requires a sternotomy and really should be done in an expert center with an operator that has years of experience and high volume of experience. And secondly, an alcohol septal ablation. This is a catheter-based technique um, that can be done by an interventional cardiologist. Again, someone with experience with patients with HCM and experience in performing this procedure. In expert hands, it should be noted, both of these procedures are highly successful at reducing symptoms and reducing LVOT obstruction with very good long-term outcomes. However, what we know is that unfortunately, the vast majority of septal reduction therapy procedures, including septal myectomy and alcohol septablation, are unfortunately performed in low volume centers. This is a, an unfortunate reality that we have, at least here in the United States and probably globally, that it's not always easy to get access to expert centers who specialize in septal reduction therapy. Here's a look at long-term outcomes 
patients who underwent septal reduction therapy. Again, this is an international cohort from the SHARE registry. And overall, as you can see on the left side, the mortality after alcohol ablation and septal myectomy was similar out to 10 years. However, females were more likely to have heart failure events following septal reduction therapy than males. It's not clear what is driving this, but it may be that females present later in their disease course with more severe disease by the time that they're undergoing septal reduction therapy. We'll need additional studies to look at this further. So the approach that makes the most sense uh, to me is to put the patient in the center of the decision-making. It's important to take into account the individual's desires and what they would like for their medical care. Um, this is really important for ARC, all cardiologists, those who are working outside of HCM centers, those that are at comprehensive HCM centers. And we often work collaboratively with our community cardiologists so that we can develop a plan for uh, septal reduction or Mavicamptin um, as a team. We also have a heart team approach here that involves a team with our surgeon, our interventional cardiologist, our cardiologists, our genetic counselors, our nurse practitioners, and really we discuss the patient and what they are candidates for. Then we go back to the patient and have that open, shared decision-making conversation prior to making a decision on treatments. So back to Sandra, our woman who finally received a diagnosis of obstructive HCM at age 70. We tried again to medically treat her with AV nodal blockers per the guideline-based approach, starting with metoprolol succinate that was titrated to maximal tolerated dose. Then we added verapamil again to maximally tolerated dose. And then she remained symptomatic with severe obstruction. And we started the conversation about septal reduction therapy or a trial of disopyramide. She wanted to avoid invasive therapy and opted to trial disopyramide. However, she had um, side effects that were prohibitive and she really had to stop the medication. We again broached the topic of septal reduction therapy. She met with our team members that do septal reduction therapy, but she declined. She was very fearful of an invasive procedure and wanted to avoid it. So what's the next best step in managing Sandra? Enroll on a heart transplant waiting list, implant an ICD, initiate Mavicamptin, or suggest alcohol ablation. So we already suggested alcohol ablation, which she declined, and we do now have a pharmacologic alternative, which is Mavicamptin, and that's what she chose to initiate. She's very much like the patients who were evaluated and studied in the Valor HCM phase three trial, which you'll remember were class three patients, very symptomatic with severe obstruction that was refractory to medical treatment, including combination therapy with AV nodal blockers plus or minus disopyramide. In that study, 100% of patients were eligible for SRT and under active consideration at the beginning of the trial, that's at baseline, and then patients were randomized to either Mavicamptin or placebo for the first 16 weeks of therapy. And what you'll see on the left is after that first 16 weeks, 
only 18% of patients remained eligible or proceeded with SRT. The crossover group, which is pictured on the right, were treated with placebo for the first 16 weeks, which is the bar in blue, and they did not cross over to Mavicampton until after week 16. And you can see by week 32 and out to week 30, 56, both groups who are now being treated with Mavicampton had similar improvements and only a small percentage of patients remained eligible for septal reduction therapy. So taking a deeper look at the LVOT gradient reduction in patients from the VALOR trial, you can see that within four weeks of therapy in the patients who were randomized to Mavicampton, they had a significant drop in LVOT gradient. That's pictured with the dark blue line as opposed to the placebo group in orange that were randomized to placebo for the first 16 weeks of treatment. They remained with severe obstruction. And once they started Mavicampton after week 16, that orange line comes down very quickly to meet with the dark blue line. After that time frame and sustained out to 56 weeks of therapy, both groups being treated with Mavicampton had substantial reduction in LVOT gradient, both at rest and after Valsalva maneuver. Not only did Mavicampton improve gradients, it also improved NYHA functional class. In the, mass, in the vast majority of patients with obstructive HCM from the VALOR trial, and again, looking at at least one class improvement and at least two class improvement, we saw the vast majority of patients had a sustained improvement in NYHA functional class. So let's take a look at selected safety endpoints at 56 weeks. Again, importantly, we always want to consider how many patients had a drop in left ventricular ejection fraction because we know that that can be a side effect of the cardiac myosin inhibitor class of medications. And what you can see in the total Mavicampton group, that there were 12 patients who had a transient reduction in LVEF to less than 50%. Nine out of those 12, or 75%, were asymptomatic, and the drop in ejection fraction was only picked up by surveillance echocardiogram. Those patients were able to resume Mavicampton at a lower dose. There were a couple of patients who had to tempor uh, completely stop Mavicampton or permanently stop Mavicampton. And that was a total of three patients or 2.8% in this trial. So what do you need to know about Mavicampton? and the REMS program, which is put in place by the FDA when it approved Mavicampton for risk evaluation and mitigation. What we need to know is that a reduced LVEF or systolic function can occur because Mavicampton reversibly reduces hypercontractility. If you get too much exposure to the drug, the LVEF can temporarily drop. And because of that, Serial monitoring of LVEF with echocardiogram is needed. It's important to look at your patient at baseline 
and to only initiate Mapacampton if the LVEF is greater than or equal to 55%, and if any point you see an LVEF less than 50, to interrupt treatment. It's also very important to know that there can be drug-drug interactions, some of them significant, between Mavicamptin and other commonly used medications, including over-the-counter proton pump inhibitors. And it's important to check the medication list for any of your patients who are starting or continuing on therapy to make sure that there are no significant drug-drug interactions. And finally, both the clinician and the patient and the pharmacist need to be on the same page. Everyone needs to do some education with regard to the risk of cardiac myosin inhibitors so that they're well aware of them prior to starting therapy. Here's a look at the number of patients or the percent of patients who drop their LVEF to less than 50%. This is looking across trials, phase two and phase three trials. The data that are reported here are only for the double blinded portion of each study. And you'll see on the left, the Maverick HCM study. This is the only study pictured here with non-obstructive HCM patients, a dose finding phase two study that had 12.5% of patients with a transient reduction in LVEF. The Explorer study with 5.7% of patients, the Valor study with 3.6% of patients, that again is only in the first 16 weeks, and the Redwood study with 7.1% of patients over the first 10 weeks. Here's Sandra's echo after nine months on a cardiac myosin inhibitor, Mavicampton. As you can see on the left side, her systolic anterior motion of the mitral valve has resolved. Her gradient has come down from greater than 80 at rest at baseline to now less than 10, both at rest and with Valsalva. Evidence of diastolic function has improved in filling pressures with 31 down to 19 for E over E prime. Her left ventricular ejection fraction remains normal at 65%. Her mitral regurgitation is now only mild. Her left atrium has shown signs of reduction in size. And most importantly, her symptoms have improved dramatically. She has opted to forego some of her background therapy and is now down to metoprolol succinate at 50 milligrams and the addition of Mavicampton at five milligrams. It's important to stress with your patient and also with your team that ongoing echo is required and that this burden can be substantial for some patients and for some health systems. So it's important to look in advance at what the infrastructure is gonna look like and what your patients are going to have to do to comply with the REMS program. So prior to initiating therapy, an echo is done. Every month for the first three months of therapy, an echo is done. Every four weeks after a dose increase, And once you achieve stable dose, we are repeating echoes every three months at this point. So what's next in the realm of cardiac myosin inhibitor trials? We have ongoing long-term extension trials for MAVA LTE. We now have 
the actively enrolling Odyssey HCM trial. This is a phase three trial in non-obstructive HCM, looking at Mavicampton versus placebo. We have the fully enrolled Sequoia HCM trial. This is a phase three trial in obstructive HCM, looking at Afficampton versus placebo. We expect top line results from that study in the first half of 2024. And we have the Maple HCM study. This is another phase three trial looking at Afficampton versus metoprolol. This will be a very important study to look at Afficampton as monotherapy versus metoprolol. And finally, we're looking forward to hearing about Acacia HCM, which will be a phase three study of Afficampton in non-obstructive HCM. So the next frontier is to move cardiac myosin inhibitor therapy from obstructive patients to non-obstructive patients. Here are some key takeaways on diagnosing and treating HCM. We know that HCM is common, occurring in at least one in 500 individuals worldwide, but it's often misdiagnosed or overlooked with a delayed diagnosis that's especially common in women and underrepresented minority patients. Cardiac myosin inhibitors are an emerging class of medications that improve symptoms, improve functional class, and improve gradients in patients with obstructive HCM. The LVEF must be monitored serially with this new class of medications due to mechanism of action reduction in LVEF can occur and is reversible with temporarily holding the drug. And finally, cardiac myosin inhibitors will see emerging data in non-obstructive populations and also in patients, selected patients, with heart failure with a preserved ejection fraction. That concludes our discussion today. I hope you found the activity informative in advancing your understanding of HCM and that you feel more confident about diagnosing and treating patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Thank you very much for participating. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash UBM 860. This activity is supported through an educational grant from Bristol-Myers Squibb.